Some good friends of mine at the church where I was a youth pastor are in the middle of a pastoral search. And uh, if you've ever been a part of a church where the pastor has moved on, they form a team and then they start taking resumes. And you, it's a really difficult process because you've got all these different thinking people uh, having a different take. And so finding the right new pastor is, is a challenge. And, uh, and it takes a really long time. And so they need our prayers. They really do. Um, uh, the story goes that there was a church in need of a pastor, and they were having trouble getting one. And it wasn't because pastors weren't applying. It was because the congregation always seemed to find some kind of fault with the candidates. Uh, most pastors were rejected because people would simply read the resume and make a, a kind of a casual assessment. They would say the They don't have enough experience, or they got too much experience, or they're too young, or they're too old, or they've got too much education, or they don't have enough education, and and so on and so on. So as the story goes, in this one particular church, uh, frustrated by the length of time it was taking, an elder decided uh, to take his own initiative and got up in front of the church and announced that he'd received a resume and a cover letter that he would like to read to the church because he thought it was important for them to hear. And so they all perked up, thinking, wow, this is our moment. He's got great news for us. And so he read the letter that came with this resume, and and it said, Dear friends, I'm writing to apply for the position as your pastor. My experience is more along the lines of an evangelist, but I I believe I could fill your position adequately. I've not attended a seminary that you know of, Uh, But I have a lot of field experience. I I don't really have a degree on my wall, or or a wall for that matter. I've traveled around most of my life, renting and doing odd jobs to support myself and preaching wherever I was invited, churches, streets, even jails. As a matter of fact, I've been thrown in jail several times and been involved in a few public squabbles. I've been accused of being anti-Semitic and anti-authoritarian and causing disturbances everywhere I go. But I had a few conversions to Christianity along the way and, you know, seen the Lord do some miraculous things. Thanks for considering my application. Well, most of the people looked up at the elder with kind of a smirk and others chuckled. And one man actually had the gall to stand up while he was laughing and say, does this guy seriously think we're going to consider him to be our pastor? Who is he anyway? And the elder replied, the letter was signed from the Apostle Paul. And this is the reality of the way it works. It is a confusing world to be a Christian who's expected to be intelligent and rational and live in a world in which we live where nobody gets a job unless you have a resume and some references. And so even that process of applying for jobs as a pastor is is daunting. I've only done this one time. I I was uh, a youth pastor. I've done it twice. I'm sorry, when I came to another church. But where you go in and, and it's a really bizarre process where you, you, you tell people, I, I want to be your pastor. And they go, well, tell us why we should hire you. And the truth be told is that the reason people would have to hire me is because God has broken me in some important ways. I would not be very valuable to you if I stood up in front of you and said, well, let me tell you, I'm about to get my doctorate, and I planted two churches, and I was the pastor of a large youth group, and I had a, and I had a book I wrote, because and, and, at some point you go, this guy really thinks a lot of himself. But at the same time, you don't want somebody who's incompetent, right? So you go, what is this, what is this supposed to be? 
We want our church staff. We brought Tammy up front today, and I mentioned how many years of experience she has in her degree from a seminary. But it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. We want our church staff humble but confident. We want them weak like us, but not too weak, and strong in faith. We want them accessible, but not too familiar. I mean, don't let the pastor email me. That could get creepy. (laughs) Want the pastor and the staff down to earth, but tuned to the spiritual world. We want them accomplished as long as they remember that God made all this possible. We want them fit, but not body obsessed. We want them worldwise, but not worldly. And so you can understand the challenge that the Apostle Paul was facing with the Corinthian church. This was a a group of people who he had launched into being a church, and they, uh, after he left, fell under the spell, if you will, of some new leaders who were coming in and began to sow doubts about Paul's leadership competence. They began to ask questions like, what's his resume and what are his references? He's not from here, you know, so who does he think he is telling us Corinthians, we Corinthians, how to live? He seems a bit transient to me. He's been bouncing around quite a bit. When was he saying he was going to come back here again? So now all of a sudden, the question in front of the Corinthian people towards a man that planted their church is, listen, we're going to need some references. We're going to need to know why we should listen to you. The entirety of the section of this book in 2 Corinthians that we're studying today, we're studying this all year long, our passage today, the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 3, this whole section is about worthiness. It's often measured by the standards of the culture, and Paul is going to serve to remind the Corinthian people that now that they are new in Christ, they have been instructed to see people differently. They have to look at people through the lenses that Christ has now given them. They have to see people the way Christ sees them. So I got two things I want to say to you from this passage. Two things I think the Lord wants to teach us as we go forth as people of God, collectively, individually, in a culture that is really oftentimes telling us there's an entirely different set of standards, an entirely different set of things that make you sufficient for work. The first thing I'll share with you this morning is this. Our standard is contrary to societies. Our standard, the people of God, our standard is not the same as the cultures around us. Verses 1 through 3 of 2 Corinthians 3 read, From the Apostle Paul, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts." You can hear in the Apostle Paul's voice a rejection of a cultural pressure to conform. I will not even look at myself through the eyes of culture. 
I'm going to look at myself through the eyes of Jesus and through the values of Christ's kingdom, which is invisible. And it's something that the Spirit is doing. It manifests itself in our life and our behavior and in our world. But the values of the church are different. Our chief values are the values that Christ demonstrated. He calls us to the same thing. Humility and service. You want to be known as a mature believer? You say, I'm a mature believer. Well, then the two characteristics that should be front and center in your life are humility and service. Short of that, you're like the rest of us, pretty immature, trying to grow in Christ. Hence, you'd ever find yourself filled with pride Paul is saying that there is a complete change of mind that must take place in the life of a believer, a set of standards that now, as he said to the Romans in chapter 12, don't be conformed any longer to the standard of this world. That's verse 2 of Romans 12. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. Paul is saying his critics who'd entered into the Corinthian flock with these supposed credentials and letters of recommendation that sounded to the culture around them as as though they needed to be valued. Paul suggested that he didn't need to present them with a resume the first time he encountered them. So why do they need one now? Two quick thoughts on this subject of references. One, this is not an indictment on recommendations. Paul himself needed a letter from the Jerusalem council to boost his credibility among Jews as he was going into temples and going into Greek society to introduce non-Jews to the gospel of grace. This was new territory for the apostles in Jerusalem. And so they came. You can read about it in the book of Acts. That Paul came to Jerusalem, and they gave him letters to say, we're down with Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. So Paul has, in his past, used references to assist him. But this is with people who didn't know him. This is with people who had no clue who he was. What made the implied Corinthian call for credibility from Paul ridiculous is... They came to Christ through Paul's ministry. They were not a church before he showed up there. They didn't even know what it meant to follow Jesus. He introduces them to this concept. and They're like, okay, now we'd like to know, now that you've seen our lives transformed by the Spirit and and you actually introduced this concept to us, we, we would now, on the backside, like a reference. That's like asking for reference after you've hired the staff person. Tammy starts today. Tammy, I'm sorry, I forgot to ask you. Could I have some references, please? The due diligence happens before you sign the deal. Paul actually is engaged with them. They've come to Christ through him. Now, one of the cool things is is that Paul had such a mature perspective on who he was in Christ that he could stand up to the heat of that kind of personal slight. And this was another sign, I know from my own experience, of somebody who is mature in Christ. Can you handle criticism? I have to tell you that that has not been uh, a characteristic that many close to me would say was present in my life for the, the, the bulk of my life because my identity and my, who I was and how important I was was so tied to what others thought about me that when others thought negatively about me, it would really play havoc with how I felt about me. And so when people would criticize me, it was painful. 
That doesn't mean that even a mature believer isn't stung by criticism. Paul, in other places in the New Testament, is heartbroken by friends who betray him and say bad things. But in this particular case, this young church that comes to him and says, how about some references, Paul? He says, you know, do we really need letters of recommendation for you, for you people? This, this demonstrates that Paul says, you know, I realize these people aren't mature in Christ, and so they really don't even really know what they're doing. So I'm going to explain to them that the Spirit requires that we view each other very differently. Now, while this isn't an indictment on recommendations as a whole, I mean, you need them in your job. You are not going to get one unless you have recommendations most of the time. This is an indictment on how the world measures value. And Paul will reiterate in chapter 5, when we get to that in a month or two, that now that we are in Christ, we see people differently, differently than we once did. Christian conversion mandates that we now see people the way God sees them. Like Peter's experience looking at Gentiles. You can read about this in Acts chapter 10. The apostle Peter has this vision where God instructs this very devout Jew, Jewish Christian that, hey, listen, Gentiles are allowed in the fold now. He gives him this very elaborate vision and says to him, The voice said to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So Peter had to undergo a transformation in the way he viewed people, that once they were Christians, they weren't Gentiles, they weren't any classification other than children of the living God. Verse 3 is something important for us to see, and it was something that the Corinthians had forgotten. In verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 3, he says to them, You are our letter of reference, quote, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This once again reaffirms the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. And don't let this sermon's details bog you down. This would be an area where you will need to perk up. This is a gift from the Spirit to you and to me. The third person of the triune God, for those of us who are raised in church, the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son, at the moment you believe, what has happened is the Spirit of the living God has come into your heart. You actually have indwelling with you, if you are a believer in Jesus, a believer in Christ has living in them the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, then, is what gives us life. It is the Spirit's work in us that enables us to respond favorably to God. If the Spirit doesn't awaken us so that we are able to hear and respond to the offer of the gospel, we won't. It is evidence that the Spirit has worked in your life if you're somebody who has actually said yes to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the apostle writes to this group of believers and says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's a guarantee of our inheritance. This is a reality for the believer. This is what Paul's saying. When I came to you, Corinthians, you, you are my letter. The Holy Spirit entered to your heart. Do you think that happens if I'm not legit? The Holy Spirit on your heart. This is 
my reference. You need a reference from me? Check your heart. Have you known Christ? Did you, get, did you meet Christ? Did the Spirit of God come to live in you? That's my reference for you all. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And in this particular case, the word draw is the word that we use to draw water from a well. So that when the Spirit of God comes, He's the one doing the action, drawing us to Himself. In John 15, Jesus says, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The Corinthians couldn't keep in mind that they were not regenerated. They were not born again. They were not believers in the truest sense of the word before Paul got there. They did not carry with them the presence of the Holy Spirit of God in their lives. They'd completely forgotten who they were. And then they come to Paul and go, well, hey, we need a reference from you. If they had seen themselves the way God sees them, if they'd seen Paul the way God sees them, it would have shaped the confusing data that was being introduced to them by these new supposed leaders. How many times have you gone someplace and realized, oh yeah, that's right, I am something different than I thought. I have a car wash that I go to in Duarte, and and one of the things that they give you at this car wash, if you sign up to be a monthly subscriber, and I know it sounds like something you wouldn't want to waste your money on, but I like a clean car. And, and so basically for, for $19 a month, they'll give you this little chip that you put underneath your, uh, your rearview mirror, and you just drive up, and then the thing goes up, and you can go every day if you want and drive through there and get your car washed. And, you know, my wife and I have argued about the value of this, and, uh, <laughs> and so this past month I canceled it. Um, she won. Uh, but one of the things is that you can drive up to this gate and, and there is a like paying customers and then like members. And every now and again, you could just forget that you're like whip out your credit card and then you realize, oh, that's right. Uh, I forgot that I'm a member. And so you could back up and move into the members line and go in free. See, and this is sort of kind of what is Paul is trying to remind these guys about. He's saying, listen, Before you get around to thinking about like, okay, what are your references? Remember who we are. It should, who we are, who the person you're dealing with is, that should all look differently to you because now you've been folded into Christ. It should change the perspective that we have about everybody. Our standard now for assessment is not what everybody else's standards are. And that doesn't mean that there isn't room for wisdom. It doesn't mean that there isn't room for counsel. It simply means that you and I have to consider that the Spirit of God is doing something different than the world would expect that it's doing. Every mom in the building's like, is it mine? Is it mine? <laughs> I love it. It's the best. It's only one, so is there a lot? You are not the lottery winner. Okay. (laughs) Our standard is contrary to societies. Here's the second point for this morning. Our sufficiency is completely the Spirit's. 
in verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Here Paul answers the question he asked in chapter 2, verse 16, when he said, who is sufficient for these things? Paul's answer to that question, no one, except the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us. Now, because of his credit to us, because of his presence in us, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We can do anything. The, Jesus said as much, you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But with him, there's virtually nothing you can't do that he would call you to. Spiritual work can be accomplished, but only by the power of God, which God supplies through his spirit. The contrast in this section is between the letter and the spirit. So let's define these. When he says the letter kills, he's referencing the law, the Old Testament law, the rules, for lack of a better word. See, the Ten Commandments pronounce that these are the things we're to do and these are the things we're not to do. And for most of us, and that would be all of humanity according to the New Testament, we are incapable of keeping this law apart from the, the Spirit of God. And so therefore, if you're just somebody who says, listen, here are the rules, live by them, it'll eventually kill you. One of the reasons we started Prism Church was to revive believers because there is an enormous population of people floating around, particularly in Los Angeles County, who we call ex-church people. And these are people that had a heart. They wanted to know God, wanted to follow God, but somewhere along the line, they got stuck in a place where the letter was killing them. People were telling them, if you're going to be loved by God, if he's going to accept you, if you're going to go to heaven, here are the rules, A, B, C, D, or in the Old Testament parlance, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Obey them or you're done. Somewhere along the line, recognizing that we don't have a power to do this, we give up. And then once you give up, the last thing in the world you want to be is around other people who are trying hard. And you quit going around people who want to follow God. What the New Testament says is that the letter kills. If you just say, hey, we're all about rules here, it's going to kill you. The Spirit gives life in two senses. One is, is that now we are, because the Spirit lives in us, alive and capable to respond to God's call to obedience. This is possible now. The person who has the Spirit of God in their life is capable of responding to the prompting of the Spirit and obeying the Lord. This is now, we now have the power. The Spirit may kill, but the letter is, I mean, the letter may kill, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit of God in us is what gives us the ability to follow. Under the new covenant, we are also forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven, remembered no more. Our complete justification for all of the things that people say we have to obey in order to get eternal life, God really liking you a lot, those things have been bought by Jesus. That issue is settled. All right, so you and I in Christ are sufficient to be standing in the presence of God. We are good right now. 
Not something in the future that we might not be able to know. Right now, according to the New Testament, we are sufficient because of what Christ has done. He has come to live in us. The Spirit of God lives in us. The goodness of Christ has been credited to our account. We don't have to labor and toil to get God's attention. He came and got us. He loves us. And now the person who has in their soul the presence of the gracious and loving Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, that person now settled in Christ is able to actually want to obey God. Doesn't mean we do so perfectly. We're constantly disappointing God and letting him down and then having to stand and say, God, I sinned against you again, forgive me. But that does not jeopardize your standing with him. The fact that you care, the fact that you feel any sense of this was not a good thing I just did is evidence of the Spirit's working in your life. It didn't change your status with God. You're sufficient because of what Christ has done for you. And this was certainly true for Paul. He said, well, give us your resume. Give us your references. Paul says, you know who makes me sufficient to do ministry with you all? I could give you some stuff. And in uh, the book of Philippians, he actually does kind of tongue-in-cheek brag about his resume, but he says, yeah, I'm not even going to do that today. I'm not even going to pay you the, the tribute of, of descending to this level of thinking. I am sufficient because Jesus has made me sufficient. My reference is that you came to the Lord through the ministry that we've been all a part of together, and we've all seen the Spirit together, and what I've told you from the beginning is we're all okay And we are all justified. We are all right with God because of what Christ has done. That's the answer I'm going to give you. That's why I'm sufficient. Charles Spurgeon says this, Salvation is the work of God. It is He alone who quickens the soul, quote, dead in trespasses and sins, unquote. And it is He who also who maintains the soul in its spiritual life. If I'm prayerful, God makes me prayerful. If I have graces, they are God's gift to me. If I hold on in a consistent life, it is because he upholds me with his hand. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. If things are going well in your life, it's because you, miraculously, the Lord is doing something in your heart. You have an amazingly consistent devotional life. You love to study the scriptures and theology. That's because God's done something in you. And any time you would manifest any arrogance or pride about that, about how much you grasp deep theology or Calvinistic theology or whatever theology you think is precise, the degree to which you feel proud about it is actually, ironically, the degree to which you don't understand at all how broken you are and how fallen you are. The letter is living by a work standard. And anytime the scripture speaks to living by the flesh or living by the law, what it's saying is we have retreated into living according to judging ourselves and others based on performance. We evaluate our, God, our value to God based on the same. The spirit is looking to the presence of Jesus in our lives. It's based completely on his grace in the gospel. And now we are given meaning in life and purpose and sufficiency to do the work he's called us to, all because of his extended kindness to us. And for our purposes, the scriptures are not simply calling us to changed behavior, but a changed heart. In fact, we would contend 
that until the heart is changed, the behavior won't follow. Our hearts long for Jesus. We long to be restored to God. We long to be close to our Creator. So we can't just say, stop doing this behavior. If you're trapped in that cycle, we say, I'm just going to stop doing this, whatever that is. If you're not saying, but I'm going to start looking to Jesus, what's going to happen is something's going to fill that space. We're a hungry and a thirsty people. If you don't fill it with Jesus, you're going to fill it with something. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Craig Barnes says, The human soul will relentlessly seek the sacred because it belongs to God and is always looking for its home, even though it fears that it will be judged if it gets there. That thing in you that may be saying, I need to stop doing this behavior, I need to start doing this behavior, what that is is it's your soul saying, I need a real thirst-satisfying encounter with Jesus that is only going to happen when I rest about the fact that I'm okay with him in his grace, that by all he's done for me, I'm okay. Then when you're able to chill, you find yourself actually wanting to love God. The changed heart is what produces the changed life. And this is so different than what so many of us heard growing up in church. We heard, be good, and you might be acceptable to God. And so what has passed for Christianity in our lives isn't really Christianity at all. Last Sunday night was the Oscars. Of course, people in Los Angeles don't care about this nearly as much as everybody else in the globe. It's kind of funny because it's like, oh, yeah, what is that? Oh, that's where the self-indulgent celebrity party downtown. Sure, yeah, and that's what we call it. We don't call it the Oscars. Anyway... Last Sunday night, they gather in Hollywood and they walk down the carpet and we all marvel at how they're dressed and who looks good and who doesn't. And then the next day online, we vote, you know, (laughs) whose dress looked better on them and, you know, and all that. And then they celebrate great art. But the red carpet seems to be a real fascination. There are entire networks that are set up to just evaluate people as they walk down this red carpet. So uh, 12 years ago, I came out here with a group of high school students from Florida, and it was literally during the week we're in right now, and we were in Hollywood the day after the Oscars, and I noticed as they were cleaning up the Oscars with the fake foam gold statues that are huge, and, and the carpet that I thought, you know, that carpet looks like it needs to be made a souvenir. And so I hopped a barrier, a good example as I was to the youth of America, And I went over and I ripped off this piece of Oscar carpet. And I thought I'll just cut it up into pieces and give it to the kids as a souvenir. And I discovered something really phenomenal. It's not carpet. It's a very thin type of really durable outdoor vinyl, uh, I mean not vinyl, but uh, uh, 
sort of a nylon material that's firm and strong. And, and this, this is stretched, and on, on TV it looks like carpet, but it's, it's not. It's faux carpet. <laughs> and this is the thing. Faux stage. I, uh, this, is the, this is the experience most of us have had with religion and with what's called imposed itself as Christianity. So we've been holding on to something that, uh, that substantially isn't sufficient. And you and I can know today that we are sufficient in Christ. In Jesus, Jesus makes you sufficient to be able to enjoy God to be able to know him today, it's only Jesus making you sufficient that makes you acceptable to God today. And when anybody would ask, hey, well, what's your, what's your references? Why should I listen to what you have to say about Jesus? The answer is the same. My sufficiency is Christ. My standard for evaluating you is, do you know the wonderful grace of God? I would pray that today our church would absorb these realities and they would change the way we felt about ourselves and who we are in Christ and it would actually change the way we treat each other and the people around us. Let us pray. Father, for this day we're grateful. We're grateful because you've changed us in Christ. And even as we'll study next week, that change is nowhere near complete We're grateful that the process has begun. You began a good work in us and you'll carry it on to the end. We're thankful that you've come to rescue us and that in so doing, you've received glory for yourself. I would pray, Father, that today you would help me and my friends here at PRISM to to rest in who we are in Jesus. That today in a new and profound way, my friends and I would know the joy of your presence in our lives that is making us sufficient to be with you, making us sufficient to serve you, that's making us, Father, at rest about life and our future. It all starts with knowing who we are in you. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus who makes us sufficient.